Hey guys, if you didn't hear yet, we had to change our name last month to the Worship Ministry Training Podcast. And if you didn't know that, you can check out last month's episode. It explains why we had to change our name and how you can help us. So go ahead and check that out. It's a two-minute episode give you a little update there. But we do record our episodes in advance. Um, So this current episode has the forbidden phrase in it. So I went ahead and bleeped it out just for fun. So uh, when you hear the bleeps, I'm not cussing. I'm just bleeping out the forbidden phrase to keep myself out of legal trouble. Uh, Anyway, enjoy this new episode. Let's jump in. Holy moly, our podcast is three years old. Happy birthday to the podcast. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Worship Training Podcast. My name is Alex Infiedjian, your host, and it has been a joy to be on this adventure with you. If you are new, I would encourage you to go back and check out all of our previous episodes in the archives. Some of our most popular episodes are Using Vocal Cues to Help Your Congregation Sing, What is Worship in Spirit and Truth with Bob Coughlin, Recovering the Lost Art of Congregational Singing with Keith Getty, Wise Boundaries with the Opposite Sex, Part 1, And surprisingly, our very first episode called Seven Traits of a Good Worship Team Member. So if you are new, again, I would encourage you to go back and check out all those episodes and all the rest of them and see if there is anything that will be helpful to you in your ministry. Well, one of the surprising joys of this podcast has been how God has used it to grow and expand me and to teach me and help me expand my view of worship over these last three years. And it's been such a joy to be on this journey with you as God is teaching us together. Something that God has been teaching me about lately is the formative nature of corporate worship, that worship is a weekly event that God uses to shape our souls and the people's souls that gather in our congregations each week. And it's a topic that I'm just barely starting to wrap my brain around, and so I thought I'd bring on author and pastor Zach Hicks, who recently released his new book, The Worship Pastor, which covers a lot of these types of themes. And this book is awesome, and it should really be required reading for anyone who's leading worship, because I think many of us worship leaders are given the chance to first start leading worship with zero training and zero guidance. It's like, oh, you play four chords and sing? Here's a guitar. You're leading us in worship next week. And then we have to go figure out how to do that. You know, so I think of all these young kids who get handed a guitar and they're like, you're leading worship. And so what do they do? They hop on YouTube, they find some videos and they start copying what they see without really understanding what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Or more importantly, without understanding how what they're doing and the way that they're doing it is going to shape their people over the course of weeks, months, years, and ultimately decades. And so what we do and how we do it week after week has a cumulative effect that ends in specific results, whether for good or for bad. And so Zach and his book and the conversation that we have today, we dig deep into the ways that corporate worship forms people's souls and how to use our gathered worship times to their greatest potential. It's a fascinating discussion, and I'm super excited for you to hear it. But first, it's our recommended product of the month, Core Sound Pads New Producer Bundle. Core Sound Pads has released a new producer bundle that has eight new incredible sounding pads that expand upon the library of their first set of pads. So there are more colors to paint with more sonic soundscape to use. I really love the tension pad, which you are hearing right now. 
It's one of the two new minor keypads that are offered in this new producer bundle. So if you've already purchased the first set and you're looking for new sounds that are going to expand upon your soundscape, then definitely check out the new producer bundles. And if you haven't yet purchased the first set of Core Sound pads, Core Sound is now offering a combo bundle at discounted prices. And that would include both of the sets, the new and the old, the producers and the regular deluxe. So check that out. All the links are in the show notes. And as always, you can download them and try them for absolutely free. All right, that's it for our recommended product of the month. Let's get into our episode with Zach Hicks. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Zach Hicks, who is a worship pastor, a blogger, and the author of the new excellent book called The Worship Pastor. Zach, thank you so much for being here. Grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Zach is way smarter than me, and uh, we're going to be talking together about how corporate worship services actually shape our people's souls. And Zach, recently I had two experiences that started to affect my view of the formative nature of corporate worship. Like, I never really thought about it before, but um, two experiences, one of them was at a friend's Orthodox baptism, And I was at this church, and there's all these people that are gathered, and they are repeating from memory, verbatim, these incredible truths that they had memorized, internalized, and then repeated to each other week after week. And I was in awe of like the depth and the power and the beauty and the repetition of the liturgy. And it really got me thinking like, wow, they can't do this week after week and not have these truths dramatically affect their worldview. Like, this is shaping the way that they see everything in their lives. And so that was kind of like experience number one that got me going, wow, like what we do on a week-by-week basis really shapes our view and our heart and our mind. And then the second experience for me was standing on the stage at my new church on my first Sunday and looking out at this sea of faces and thinking, Oh my goodness, I, I plan to be here for the long haul. And how do I shepherd all these people over the next 20 years? Like, how can it move beyond mm. just singing four songs to being something much more intentional that like shapes them into the image of Christ over time? So as I asked myself that question, I realized I have no idea how to do that. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why I brought you on to help me and our listeners kind of figure this topic out. So... Well, praise God that you're asking those questions. And I will tell you that the conversation you and I are having right now is a conversation that I have with lots of worship leaders. And honestly, I had with myself when I first started out because at the end of a Sunday and over the course of time, if you're paying attention, I guess you can stick your head in the sand, but if you're paying attention, you're you're doing things and making decisions that affect people's discipleship, the way they follow Jesus. And you start to track over time how well what you plan and lead is shaping the people. And for me, it was a lot of doing it wrongly before I realized, holy cow, I need to take this seriously. I need to start thinking more deeply about this and uh, reading and studying the scriptures, praying, talking to pastors, all that kind of stuff. And that's how it started for me. So it's neat to have this conversation with folks I feel like who share my own biography. Yeah, well, let's maybe just start at the very beginning, the why question, like, why do you think that worship services form people's souls? And maybe how do worship services form people's souls? Like, in what ways are people's spiritual life formed by gathered worship? 
Yeah, it kind of started with an inkling that, I mean, we tend to speak about worship as music, and uh, many of us who think about worship realize it's so much more than just music. But that's often where it starts for us as music leaders in our local churches. And so that's where I started seeing the way that the songs that I led and um, maybe the doctrine contained within or the lyrics became the lasting prayers on the lips and the mouths and the, the hearts of the people of God throughout the week. And as I started noticing that those are the lasting prayers, I mean, someone said, and I kind of quoted it in my book, people don't walk out of a service humming a sermon. And you'll probably forget a sermon largely by Monday, at least I do, not to minimize its impact and not to minimize the power of the preached word. But a song sticks with you. And I started realizing that what I give the people in my selections become those tapes that replay in their hearts throughout the week or those particular lyrical lines that stick with them. And the question became, what am I giving them? Uh, What am I giving them to meditate on day and night? And that's a scary thought because when the scriptures talk about meditation day and night, they want it to be the very word of God. They indicate that that's the source of fruits and the abundant life as someone says. And so when we think about worship shaping people, for me, that's where it started. But then it blossomed on a whole different level. When I read a book that many worship leaders have now read that I just commend to everybody called Desiring the Kingdom by James K.A. Smith. And he has a truncated version of that, if that feels too heavy and philosophical, which it kind of is called You Are What You Love. Both of those books opened my eyes to the way that rituals and things that we do in worship, and I mean rituals in the broadest sense, just things that we do that are repeated on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. Those things have shaping power. And if that sounds foreign to you, check out the book and read it. Because once you do, you become haunted by the fact that this repetitive thing that we call Sunday morning worship has a shaping effect. And the book starts to ask the question, what kind of person is being shaped by these structures of worship, by these patterns that we engage in? And how is it competing with and fighting against or corroborating the kinds of things that that are the patterns in our life in the world, the very mundane things we do, like going to a shopping mall or watching sports or our day-to-day work or our studies um, and how those things are shaping us and What kind of Christian is being shaped by corporate worship that uh, helps to fortify someone for all the competing other ways that the other rituals, the other, quote, liturgies out there are shaping us? And all that opened up the world to me of how intentional I must be in thinking through these patterns of worship and how they cause people to either follow more clearly on the path of discipleship or walk in a different direction. Yeah, I love the word ritual. And I think like the way that you define it is just a habit, right? It's a habit. It's something we do on a weekly basis. And it's like drip, drip, drip into the bucket. It has this cumulative effect over time. And I was listening to um, the Bible Project podcast. I don't know if you've heard them, but Mm -hmm. um, they were talking about uh, how gathering together to read the word is a very formative experience as well. And they were quoting this sociologist, I don't know if his name is Steven Berger or Peter Berger, but this sociologist says that human beings create structures and then those structures create us. And they were saying how the church is the creation of a structure and then that structure or that habit begins to shape us. And I just found it so fascinating. And like you said, we have to be so intentional about our services and what we're doing and how we're doing it. So as we think about 
the formative nature of worship, what are the types of characteristics that we should be trying to form in our people through our corporate worship services? I will always answer that question chiefly, principally with the gospel, because at least in my world right now, talking about formation and worship is very in vogue. And therefore, we're talking about formation largely in the sense of virtues, like forming positive characteristics of us. And I think that's important, and that's a part of it. And even things like what my friend Glenn Packiam is talking about, his, one of his central theses is that worship is supposed to form in us the virtue of hope, to be a hopeful people, a people who have kind of the end game of what God is up to in this world in mind. And, and I do think other things like that are important to form in us. But again, I go back to forming the gospel in us. And what I mean by the gospel is the narrative and the story and the proclamation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I think that is the key that unlocks all formation. And it is not just kind of the key that opens the door. I think it's the better metaphor is fuel. It perpetually fuels our growth, our change, our development as human beings, as flourishing human beings, as as Christians. And so when I apply that to worship, I would say that one of the most important things we can think of is how the gospel is proclaimed in the worship service. And I think it happens in a variety of ways. The sort of baseline way that worship leaders often think of is, I need to fill my songs with songs about this story. And so oftentimes that's where you start. You start to sing songs like In Christ Alone or, or songs that tell that kind of narrative about Jesus. And I think that's important. But I also think there's a deeper way. It's something that Smith talks about, something that people who are plugged into liturgy start to talk about. And it's that not only is it the content of our worship that speaks the gospel and forms the gospel in us, but it is the very shape. It's the structure. And I do think that a good worship service tells that story. It tells of God's grandeur. It tells of God's glory on the front end. And then like Isaiah experienced in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 6, it immediately sort of moves into a time where if a human being encounters the grandeur of God, you must stop and acknowledge the, the gravity of your sin. You must stop and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need you. And uh, after that point, as in Isaiah, God swoops in and proclaims his solution to our predicament, that he is holy and perfect and immortal, invisible, God-only wise. And we are sinners, and the gap is an infinite distance. And yet there is one, Jesus Christ, who came and took on flesh for us, who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died. And that news and that reality is given to us as a free gift of grace from the Father through the Holy Spirit. And what the story I just told, I'm becoming increasingly convinced, should be a part of the way worship is structured more and more. And as I look back in church history, I see that as a repeated refrain across denominations, across traditions, that Christians, when they're taking seriously the formation of worship, are thinking through not only the content, but this very structure. What does that look like? I, I know in your book you have a chapter about the liturgical architect yes. and how we can structure our services. And I know that in different traditions it's going to look different. And right. even in that chapter, you try to cover how those different traditions can set up their service flow to tell this story. But maybe can you give like one example of how a service could look like? 
yeah. in that structure? What I try to do in that chapter is not only talk about it verbally, but give some kind of visual graphs and illustrations of this that I think help tease out. Because I think if people can think visually about the arc of this narrative, you can start to piece it together for how it might work for your own local church to engage in fleshing out this kind of structure. And so one of the things that I try to do on page 164 is offer a model for a church that maybe is just, you know, the structure of worship is a song set and an offering and a sermon or something like that. And the song set really is that bulk of 15 to 20 to 25 minutes where you've got something to shape and something to do. And um, I think that's where a lot of worship leaders live. And so I guess the question is, how does one be faithful in the selection of songs and the progressions of songs in moving across the themes of the story that I just told? For a lot of us who are in the kind of worship set tradition, it's trying to incorporate songs at that moment that allow us to say, I need you. I'm a sinner. In the words of our liturgy that we use at our church, I have offended against your holy laws. And I know that won't be wording for everybody in every church, but that idea that somehow I've I've broken this relationship irreparably, and I don't have anything that I can bring to the table to solve this problem. Uh, that's confession. So is there a place for this confession? And then after that, is there? can we go into a song or prayer that leads us in words that assure us that in Christ we are justified, saved, sanctified, loved? You know, can we sing about words that explicitly name his life and his death as the solution to our problem? And all done within a song set that really doesn't stop and end, but has an arc and a contour. I think that's very possible. And I think that's honoring to the Christian tradition, but more importantly, honoring to this shaping structure of how the gospel bears fruit in the life of the believer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, the thing that stood out in reading your book uh, so far that I've been like really convicted about is when I examine our church's services right now, I don't see a time of confession. I don't see kind of this weekly time where we confess that we have failed to live to God's standards and that we call out to him and then we receive pardon and forgiveness. And we don't have that time built into our services. So for me, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I start to insert either songs or prayers or even a time of confession into those uh, services? And I think what you're hitting on right now, Zach, is kind of what probably many of our listeners are facing, which is like, okay, I've got 20 minutes. How do I use those 20 minutes? And you're saying, well, you can use it through good song selection, but maybe are there a couple other things that um, you can throw at our listeners who like uh, things that they can insert into that time? Maybe it's a time of a reading or a creed or something like that? Well, definitely. And I, I think that even then, you know, as we're talking about this idea of confession, if you're part of a church that isn't used to it, you just have to be careful and judicious about the way that you proceed, because some people can have some knee-jerk reactions based on our own tradition's history. And I'll tell you, I mean, just where the rubber hits the road for me is, if you're in tradition that doesn't do it, this is the objection that I've gotten before. That feels Catholic. Why are we confessing our sin? Or certain traditions will say, we don't confess our sin because we are already on the other side of what Christ has done and given for us. Uh, someone gave me this metaphor of why does a butterfly ever go back to talking about being a caterpillar, right? And I think that's a fair question. The question I want to ask in response to this is, how did your week go? Did you feel like a butterfly? Did you have any caterpillar moments this week? 
And how does it feel to have to sort of shove those things aside as you come before the living God who has seen your sin? In other words, what I'm saying is that, yes, we are saved and justified once for all in Jesus. It's not like we go through some re-salvation experience. At the same time, Christians daily need to be honest about the fact that we need to be able to say to God, I've messed up. I need you. The gospel is not just some entry ticket in. It is it is the constant uh, source of life and health for the Christian, and, and it's predicated upon our ability to be honest about confession. So in those moments, we have to be gentle in the way we introduce confession, and it might start with not a prayer, you know. For me at a church where we didn't have this as a tradition, the first song in the song set that I ever gave that was confession-ish was Lord, I Need You. At the time, it was just a really healthy song, and it isn't all that confessional. It's more of a song of need, and really only the first few lines talk about confession. It's, Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and it gets to grace pretty fast. But nevertheless, it puts confessional language and a confessional tone into the service and it gives it to the people. I think it's like a softball. It's a softball confession. And I think that once people have a taste for that, you can go to more heavy things like other songs. But, you know, to answer your question now, I do think that a great place to start, because no people might argue with like a prayer of confession from some old liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. But it's hard to argue with, say, a psalm because it's scriptural. So why not try having the people read a portion of Psalm 51 together, or a portion of Psalm 130 together. And if, if it's something where you feel like you don't want to be stop and start, maybe it's, you know, normally where the worship leader would talk and you've got music underlaying underneath that time. Use that time for the worship leader to talk and to set up and prepare people to confess and say, let's read together and confess our sins. And all we're doing is reading a psalm. It's hard to argue with that. But yes, inserting and going beyond, if you can, going to older liturgies like the Book of Common Prayer and finding really well-worded confessions of sin can be a huge gift to your church. And I think even something as simple as, you know, the worship leader just saying, Lord, right now we just stop and confess yes. that we've failed. I have failed you, Lord. And uh, and then you just say, church, let's just spend a few moments, you know, confessing our sin to the Lord. And then you go into a song of forgiveness. That's know, right. So. Totally. Yeah. And I've encountered that a lot, too, where that kind of more extemporaneous approach to just praying on behalf of everyone, confession, and leaving open time for people to just sort of silently say, God, I need to sort of lay this burden down with you. I need to be honest about this. And it's really powerful when you go out of that time and lead a song about forgiveness and grace in Christ. Yeah, Zach, I'd love to hear maybe, you know, this idea of being intentional with all the portions of our services and, you know, using each one to, to form our people. How can a worship leader approach each of the different portions of a worship service and be intentional about how to shape people with it? So, for example, like if we could just walk through the greeting and then the songs or exhortation between songs, offering communion announcements, sermon and service close, like right. um, can we walk through each one and you can kind of give a phrase or two that you say that is formative in nature? Yes, I, th I think I can. You know, when you think about the beginning of a worship service, I describe it as a point where we all need a kind of emotional calibration because everybody's coming from all sorts of spots. Some people are like locked and loaded. They've been like listening to, to Hillsong United in their car on the way to worship and they're just ready to sing or ready to experience the presence of God. And then there are others who have been fighting with their spouse or uh, had 
You know, been drinking too much the night before or trying to uh, wrestle their kids into the car and they're just coming frazzled. And so everybody's on a different point emotionally. And so I think that a good worship leader recognizes pastorally that this moment as worship begins is a really tender and important moment to help get everybody as much as possible on the same page. And I, I think that's done with music sometimes. I think it's done with some carefully chosen words. And oftentimes what I try to do at the beginning of a worship service before it starts is to offer some very brief, like 60 seconds, some kind of devotional or you know worship thoughts that helps everybody engage in, in why we, it's something as simple as like, why are we here today? You know, we come from various places and our lives are just kind of all over the map. And I'm sure some of you have been dealing with your kids or fighting with your spouse, you know, and just naming some of those things. Contrary to what some people have said, we're not here to lay our burdens aside to worship God. We're actually here to bring those very things that we've come with into the room to the throne of God and to the feet of Jesus at the cross and to watch and marvel at what he does with it. And so I encourage you in the quietness of your heart and as we prepare to go in to lay those things down and ask the Lord to use those tender moments to preach his gospel into your heart today. And so, and I'll often go into a prayer and say, Holy Spirit, help us in this moment to see and savor Jesus for all that he is, to lay our burdens down and to find on the other side of that, the glory and magnificence of Christ crucified and resurrected for us. And that that's a real important moment at the beginning of the service. Yeah. And I would say to you, Zach, like, I love that you're taking that moment and shepherding and yes. not just blasting people with the song. Cause I, I know at some churches they're like, just start the music. Right. And I've found that people just stare at you like blank, <laughs> sh- you know, sheep when, when you just blast them with the downbeat, like I know. there needs to be this relational connection and this moment of like centering and gathering that can only happen when you talk. And I'm not saying that it's always wrong to start like just with a song, but man, I, I have found worship to be more engaging and more effective when we gather and point people in the right direction with our words. Well, I think either way, the first several minutes of worship are going to be time for everybody to calibrate. And so whether it's going to be a song that helps people center, but you got to recognize if it's a song, that song's kind of a wash <laughs> because people are, you know, they look like zombies for a reason. They're kind of coming in and getting reoriented toward what worship is about. And, you know, uh, we move into songs and I think worship leaders need to straddle that line. If, if you've got a song set style structure to your worship of being a little too preachy, <laughs> you know, we're not there to preach the sermon. We're there to help the liturgy and help the worship structure preach. And so sometimes we, we don't need to necessarily go on and on. And I think that's a propensity that we have is to probably say too much. But at the same time, carefully chosen words between songs or prayers that help transition one song to another. I, that's why I say it's not only the elements that we choose, but it's the transitions that also need thought, pastoral care, and rehearsal. I think that if we're cognizant of what one song has said and what another song on the other side of that is saying, a carefully chosen prayer or word in between those becomes the helpful transition that creates a sense of seamlessness to the narrative. Um, offering. Offering's a big time where we put money in a plate, whether it happens at the end of your service and back or as a ritual, as a part of your service. I want people to recognize offering as a time where we're basically saying in response to the gospel, 
I give myself wholly and completely to you again. It's like it's like everybody's rededication moment. It's a time to Romans 12, 1 it, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, and so I, I always try to encourage people, as you're giving of your money, and maybe as you're singing this song together that we're singing, or hearing this song in this offering read, use it as a time to pray to the Holy Spirit and pray to God and say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I, as a worship leader, also try to encourage people that the sermon is a real moment of worship. It is a moment where we offer the worship of our ears. It's a moment where we hear the word of God preached imperfectly by an imperfect human being, but nevertheless, it's a place where God has chosen to show up in the power and presence of the word to move among us and to, as the scriptures say, kill and make alive, you know? Uh, so it's a powerful word. And then the service close, I would say, is a place where we as Christians can say, now that we've tasted and seen afresh this week, the work of the Lord in our lives, how can we send people on mission? And so oftentimes, historically in the church, it's been a benediction or a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. Or it's been a kind of word that says, now go forth and be witnesses of what you have seen today. And so that Worship is connected with all of life, and that as you go forth into your vocations, you're seeing it as a kind of symbiotic relationship between what I do Monday through Saturday and what happens on Sunday. And uh, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's important to point out, Zach, that like you're not just sitting up there with a the guitar and only singing songs. Your role is to teach. You're, yep. The words that you're saying at the start of the service or in between songs or before offering or at the end have a shaping effect on how your people view the service the next week. That's so, right. like A couple of phrases that I say, and you've kind of pointed them out, is like, I'll say like at the front, like we're going to worship God through singing. We're going to worship God through giving. We're going to worship God through submitting to his word in the sermon and kind of helping people understand that all of this is worship. Like if you say that week after week, it has a formative effect on their view of worship. And then for offering, like I'll just say like, let's ask the ushers to come forward and we're going to continue worshiping by giving our gifts or I'll say giving our gifts for the advancement of the gospel in the world. You know? And so it's like those little phrases that worship leaders can insert into the service flow really has a formative effect. So are there any other kind of phrases like that that you found to be particularly helpful? I do. And you know, um, it is kind of interesting how the worship leader has become a kind of liturgical MC. We're, We're there to sort of present the next portion of the liturgy because, you know, we don't have bulletins anymore and people aren't necessarily seeing where it's going. And I find not only is it helpful to announce these things or to verbally talk about them, but it's important to pray them. You know, if the offering's done and you're you're the one to pray the wrap-up prayer before the preacher comes up to preach, praying things like what you just said are often really helpful. It's like, God, we, we give ourselves to you and we thank you yet again that your grace is sufficient for us. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to open up and unstop our ears to worship as we listen to your word to us. You know, prayers like that, put on the lips of the people and the minds and the hearts of the people, eventually start to reorient people to exactly what you're saying, that the, a worship service is just that. It is worship from beginning to end. And and maybe with, with enough worship leaders doing this in enough churches, we'll stop having this unhelpful phrase, like, we're going to have a time of worship, 
then we're going to have an offering, and then we're going to have the sermon. Uh, I know what they mean, and I'm, you know, I don't want to grape on that too much, but I do want to say if we're, if we're really desirous to see this whole thing, it'll, it'll be those moments where we pray. Uh, and you know, even more so that we don't just view what happens in a worship service as worship. So maybe it's at the end of the service. Go out and be worshipers as you witness and as you fulfill your vocations, as you go in your day-to-day, worship the Lord in your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Or maybe that's a prayer uh, so that you can connect the gathered worship of Sunday morning with the scattered worship of Monday through Saturday. Yeah, and I do want to gripe on that phrase, we're going to worship and then we're going to... Like, man, if I would encourage our listeners, and I I haven't done this yet because I'm pretty new to our church, uh, but I want to talk to the pastors and say, please don't delineate between musical worship and the sermon. You know, like, let's use right. let's use specific phrases, like we're going to worship through singing, and then we're going to worship. But I probably will talk to my pastor about that soon, because... It, <laughs> I'll it leave does, that to you. <laughs> yeah, no, And I would encourage our listeners to have those conversations with your leadership as well, you know? So, Definitely. Super important that everybody's on board, including the senior pastors or other pastors. And even, like, in children's ministry, like, I, you know, we had VBS, and they're like, are you guys ready to worship? And I'm like, no, don't say that. So, <laughs> I know that's like semantics, but sure. but it is important because it does shape our people's view of it. So it does, it does. Man, I'd love to talk more about timeline. You know, because I feel like we can't always hit all the elements needed to have like okay, we're going to always hit confession, or we're going to always hit communion, or we're going to always hit. So you know, sometimes I just want to whip together a set that I know is going to get people to that place of you know exuberant worship. And that's okay probably from time to time, but sure. you know, how do we how do we know, man, it's been a while since we've confessed. We better do a time of confession next week. You know, I, I guess in your tradition where you have this liturgy dictated to you guys and a yearly kind of um right. annual that covers all the bases, like I don't know. I'm not really sure what my question is, but kind of speak into that a bit. How do we cover all the bases throughout a year? I think it's a good question, you know, and, and you're right, there is a gift in being in a tradition that hands you a package of a complete annual set of services that that walk you through these important things. I think the metaphor that I use and that I really stole from other people like John Whitfleet is a really helpful metaphor to, to answer your question and think about this. And it's a metaphor of a theological dietitian. Because if you think about a dietitian who's trying to get an unhealthy person to a more healthy place, they're definitely thinking about the individual meals, but they're also thinking about the monthly meal plan And I think that's where we worship leaders can do a better job, and it's actually a pastoral work to think more administratively and and bigger picture in the way that we plan and lead worship services. If we're stuck in the week-to-week grind, and we're just sort of flying by the seat of our pants and always basing our planning on the tyranny of the urgent, we're never going to get to the place of what you're talking about, of of lifting our head, of seeing the forest for the trees, and being able to think about the broader arc of all these things that can't possibly be done in one service, but over the course of time need to be sprinkled throughout the diet. You know, it's like a dietitian can't possibly put every healthy food or every food group into every meal. But over the course of a week and a month, it's balanced, right? And so, I do think that it's important to have your worship planning in planning center or whatever your apparatus is on a week-to-week basis. But I also, to get real tangible, I also keep a Google Doc that I call my long-range planner. 
And all it is is like the date of the service and some songs that I'm thinking of or doing or maybe offertories that I'm planning that I want to kind of put in the queue or special themes that are coming because it's Advent or Christmas or the preacher's preaching on something and I had an idea. And it's my hopper. And what it does is when I jump in every week when I'm going to plan the specific service, I jump back to it. And every time I do, I'm sort of forced to look at four or five weeks of services in a row, if not a whole year. And I'm able to kind of see how's the people's diet going. And I ha- I end up having those kinds of moments where it's like, ah, oh, you know, we haven't been reflecting a lot on this, or there hasn't been a lot of moments for people to cry out in lamentation, or there hasn't been a, a lot of moments, you know, we've, we've been singing a lot of down songs, you know, mellow, introspective, and it's time to celebrate. And it's those lift your head moments where I do see the forest and I, I say, ah, oh, we need balance. And I guess the question is, what kind of balance? And so what I try to point out is, uh, be an avid reader of the Psalms, for instance. Luther called the Psalms the little Bible, and Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And I think what both of them meant is that if we're steeped in the Psalms, we're going to be acquainted with this full diet, and we're going to start to notice the kinds of theological themes or prayers that are in the Psalms that aren't a part of our people's weekly diet. And when you're steeped in the Psalms, you're going to start to be able to point out the weaknesses or gaps in your congregation's diet. And so if you've got a long-range planner and you're steeped in the language and theology and heart of the Psalms, you're going to be someone who's aware of of the things that might be missing on a week-to-week basis, and you can plan for those and think more long-term and annually about those things, which is a very pastoral thing to do. Oh man, I love that, Zach. That dietitian analogy is really good. And like you said, you can't fit everything into every meal, but if you look at the meal plan for the month, that's a really great analogy. So thank you. Yeah. I'd, lo- I'd love to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about the content of our services, but does the method or the aesthetic <laughs> or the form of our services shape our people as well. So like I'm talking production and yep. yeah, so just talk about that a little bit. Well, it sure does. Uh, I'm a firm believer in Marshall McLuhan's phrase that's become very popular and makes a lot of sense. The medium is the message. A medium is not neutral. And so musical style is pastoral. It's a pastoral question because it it too shapes the sensibilities of our flock. And production, the way some, the architecture, you know, the way your sanctuary is laid out shapes people. And let me just give a tangible example. And it's a, it's a context in which many of us are. So even as maybe it sounds a little critical, I recognize that that's something that we have to work with. So a lot of us exist now in sanctuaries that are built like theaters. They've got uh, stadium-style seating, and they've got a stage with a pretty significant lighting apparatus or complex of some kind. And we have to realize that because of the way people are formed outside of worship, when they enter into a theater, it predisposes a human being to think certain thoughts about what's going to take place in that room because we've been shaped by architecture of theaters. When we go in a theater, what are we there to do? Well, we're there to be passive to sit and receive a movie or a performance where they're to be performed to. You don't often go into a theater and find yourself actively participating in a lot of things. And so when you walk into a sanctuary that looks like a theater, things start to fire in your second layer of consciousness that tell you, I'm not here to participate. I'm here to be entertained 
or I'm here to receive. And so that's why you have all these people harping on kind of the contemporary church and the entertainment culture. Well, our architecture and our accoutrements have aided and abetted this kind of perception such that worship leaders are going, my people aren't singing. I look out and it's just me and everyone's staring at me, you know? Well, there's a reason for that. And it's it's not only maybe the way you choose songs or lead the songs, but it's the very, the the air that is set up by the architecture and the aesthetics of it. And, you know, if it sounds like a rock show, if it looks like a rock show and it smells like a rock show, people are going to behave as though they're at a rock show. And there are only a few rock shows where you've got active participation of the congregation the whole time. <laughs> you too, maybe, uh, and some other places where people are singing along, but, you know, you don't always have um, those kinds of things going on. Uh, and so if that's the case for us, if our music is more of a rock aesthetic, we have to realize that that's going to be what we're, we're going to have to work against for the values of worship. As a pastor, we're thinking through, how do I sort of explain to the people, it might look like you're here to be entertained by us. It might look like we're here to perform for you. That's the exact opposite. You know, we're all in the power of the Spirit, the choir today. We're all the worship band today. And we're here to, in the Spirit, through Jesus, offer our offering to God. So sing with me, participate, join in. And a perceptive worship leader recognizes and begins to exegete their medium and see what the good sides of it are and what the liabilities are. And then they begin to pastor truth into those liabilities and almost prophetically speak against them in a way that allows those values to be challenged so that people aren't passive receptors, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I think, again, it goes back to you taking that time to teach. Yep. You just said what they needed to hear. So, man, so helpful. Yeah. Um, Zach, there's so much more we could talk about, um, but we're barely scratching the surface. Any books that you would encourage our listeners to read for a deeper dive into this topic? Definitely. Um, three books. Uh, so, James K. Smith's Desire in the Kingdom or You Are What You Love has really shaped me. Another book that's been very meaningful to me uh, has been the first few chapters of a very short book called Worship, Community, and the Triune God of Grace by James Torrance. The first three chapters are just gold. I found myself weeping through them, and it totally altered the way I think about Jesus' involvement, his active involvement in a worship service. And the third one, I'd say, is Christ-Centered Worship by Brian Chappell. All three of those leak very heavily into the worship pastor in my book. Yeah, and speaking of Zach's book, The Worship Pastor, Zach graciously gave me a couple copies to give away to our listeners. So here's what we're going to do, everybody. We're going to uh, ask you, the first two people who tweet at me and at Zach, and who promise, promise, to go through this book with two other young worship leaders, I will send you a free copy of the book. So tweet at me and Zach. My Twitter handle is WLT Podcast, and Zach's, I believe, is just Zach Hicks, which is Z-A-C Hicks, H-I-C-K-S. Right, Zach? Yeah, and I will give you a promise on top of that promise. If you end up doing that and going through with a couple other worship leaders that book, and you have questions, I promise to be accessible to answer those questions. Nice. Free coaching from Zach. Yeah. <laughs> so, and if, if you're listening to this podcast after October 2017, then these books are probably long gone. So please don't keep tweeting <laughs> unless you well, just want to say mean, hi. Yeah. yeah like or or like, tell other people about my book. Please continue tweeting if you want yeah, to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So cool. Zach, man, before we wrap up, uh, any final words for our listeners about the formative nature of, of worship leading? Yeah. I would just say uh, you 
worship leaders are pastoral, whether you know it or not. It's not a question of whether you want to become pastoral. Uh, You are. Because simply the decisions you make have a shaping effect on people. The question is, is it going to be in a positive Christian direction or is it going to be malformative? And so I'd encourage you with that charge of being pastoral, being intentional in the way that you think and lead and plan. And then finally, for all the mistakes that you and I will make, Jesus has died for you and rose for you, and there's nothing, no mistake, worship mistake you could make, no other sin too grand that would outpace the grace of God for you. Amen. Um, Zach, where can our people stay connected with you if they want to keep following you after this podcast? ZachHicks.com. It looks like ZachHicks.com. Z-A-C-H-I-C-K-S.com. And Twitter, at ZachHicks, Facebook, slash Hicks. Awesome. Awesome. Zach, thank you so much for your time. And I hope that this uh, episode, at the very least, has begun whetting people's appetite and helping them realize, okay, I have to be more intentional with my worship planning. What a great conversation, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, brother. Well, that's it for today's episode. I hope that you were challenged by this episode. I hope your mind was expanded and that you are starting to wonder and think and dream about how you might more intentionally use your worship services to shape your people's souls week after week. So dig into this and check out some of those books. Definitely check out Zach's book. And again, we want to thank our sponsor for the month, Core Sound Pads. Be sure to check out Core Sound's brand new producer bundle, eight new incredible sounding pad sets for your worship services. You can try them for free. And the links are again in the show notes. Also in the show notes, we make it very easy to share these episodes. So please click one of those links and share this episode with your friends. We really want to help as many worship leaders as possible. And we are relying on you to help us get the word out to other people that they might be blessed and encouraged to lead worship better. In the meantime, uh, we want to encourage you to visit worshiptraining.com. Check out articles, resources, podcasts, and reviews for worship leaders. And we will see you in a month for our next helpful episode. God bless you guys. Thank you for being a part for three years, sticking in. God bless you. Take care.